You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good. Um, This morning, we are going to be learning from the book of the prophet Hosea as we continue our sermon series, Major in the Minors. And once again, I want to remind you that one of the reasons we're going through the the minor prophets and giving you an overview of them is to hopefully inspire and encourage each of you to read through them yourselves throughout the week. Um, We know that, you know, going through the the minor prophets, they're, they're pretty intense they, they can be convicting, and uh, they can also be very confusing. And so we're just trying to help you out with that so that we can give you an overview of the, the themes and uh, what God is doing and what God is speaking to us, and, and then you can go through that personally yourself throughout the week. So that's what we, we, we're hoping that, that you do, um, especially because, yeah, w- while they're shorter than the major prophets, they're just as divine and just as important in helping us both grow in our knowledge of who God is, as well as aiding us in maturing in our relationship with Him, with the Lord. And and this is really the heart of the book of Hosea. God desires the people of Israel to repent of their sin so that they can come back to Him and once again know, know Him and grow in their relationship with Him. In fact, this was the purpose of the covenant promise that that he first made with Abraham and then again with Moses at Mount Sinai after he'd saved them from slavery in Egypt, that as long as they followed his commandments, they would be his people and he would be their God. They would be his people and he would be their God. There's this covenant relationship. In fact, it's a relationship so intimate and rooted in love that the Lord himself compares it in the book of Hosea to being just like a marriage between a husband and a wife. Unfortunately, though, as, as, we'll, as we'll find out, in the time that Hosea comes onto the scene, we'll find that Israel had become incredibly unfaithful to that marriage, breaking their covenant with the Lord in every possible way. But before we get into that, let's start at the beginning. Hosea 1 verse 1 actually gives us the timeline and the context into which Hosea's prophecies take place. And of course, context is incredibly important as we approach the text. Hosea 1 1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And you can read all about those kings in 2 Kings 14 to 19, if you so choose to do so. And on that end, if you were here last week, You may have noticed that some of the names of the kings of Judah listed here are the same as those listed during the days of the prophet Micah, which obviously tells us then that Hosea and Micah would have been contemporaries, both prophesying basically at the same time as each other in the mid-8th century BCE. The difference, though, is that Micah, along with Isaiah, were prophets in the southern kingdom of Judah, Hosea was situated by God in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is also sometimes called Ephraim. So Hosea's target audience then 
were the people of Israel. Though he does make some prophecies about Judah as well, which I want to note also perfectly agree with and align with the prophecies of both Micah and Isaiah, contemporaries at the time, most of which have been fulfilled or partially fulfilled. And um, that just tells us, it just proves to us that the same God, the same Holy Spirit was speaking through each of them, right? Um, now, as we're told, the king of Israel at the time was Jeroboam II. And we can read in 2 Kings chapter 14 that this guy, he wasn't a very good dude. Right? In fact, we're told that, that he consistently uh, chose to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, encouraging idol worship as, as well as unjust and corrupt practices, which as we learned last week, Micah had called out as well. But even so, he, he reigned at a time when, when Israel as a nation was actually prosperous and expanding. So God was still doing good things through the nation, even though they were sinning against him. Though we'll find that that prosperity wouldn't last as, as the kings who would follow Jeroboam II would find themselves embroiled and entangled by, in, in assassinations and war with Judah and eventually being overthrown and exiled by the nation of Assyria, all things which the prophet Hosea warns and speaks of through the book as well. But it's during the reign of Jeroboam II at that time of prosperity in Israel, when the book of Hosea most likely starts. And, and on that end, as we get into the book, what we'll find is that it starts with a marriage. How lovely is that? Though it's not actually very lovely, because this marriage is not a very solid one. It's broken from the start. So read with me here to, with, in, in Hosea 1, 2 to 9. Hosea 1, 2 to 9, it says this. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him. Go and marry a woman, woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. And this translation is less harsh than the other ones. I just want to point that out. So, so he went and he married Gomer, daughter of Dibleam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. For in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in Jezreel Valley. And she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God." Uh, as a pastor, whenever I'm doing premarital counseling for an engaged couple, I can tell you with 100% confidence that if, if I suspect one of them has been or has the potential to be unfaithful towards their future spouse, I'd recommend, strongly insist really, that they do not go forward with their wedding. 
Make sense, right? Especially because the whole purpose of a God-honoring marriage is to, is to enter into a holy, monogamous, lovingly selfless, mutually committed, and unifying covenant between a husband and a wife. It's to declare to your spouse, I'm all yours and yours alone. So infidelity is definitely not supposed to be part of the package. And so we have to, have to ask, why is it then that the first thing God tells Hosea to do is to marry and have children with a woman who's guaranteed to be unfaithful to him and is unfaithful to him? What's, what's going on here? Well, sometimes when we're reading through the prophets, what, what we'll find is that God doesn't just call them to speak his word through, with their mouths but that he sometimes asks them to enact out or become a living allegory of the message or warning that, that he wants to convey. For example, God once commanded the prophet Ezekiel to bake bread over cow dung in order to symbolize how God's people were defiling themselves in their sin. That's, that's pretty gross, Right? Yeah, it's pretty gross. But yet, so is sin. And, and this is the picture which God is painting here. That the marriage between Hosea and his adulterous wife, Gomer, is meant to symbolize the, the covenant relationship between God and Israel, which they'd defiled and corrupted in their own unfaithfulness. As it says in, in verse 2, that they were committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. To put it simply, sim- simply God's basically saying to Israel through the, through the display of, of Gomer's infidelity to Hosea, like, hey, see, see what Gomer's doing? This is what you're doing to me. You're cheating on me. You're breaking my heart. And then we're also told throughout Hosea specifically how they've been doing it, how they've been cheating on God. And, and we find out that it was primarily through many con- continuous and unrepentant decades of idol worship, mostly directed uh, toward the Canaanite religion of Baalism, a religion that was widely introduced into Israel during the reign of King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. So this so-called god Baal, sometimes it's a multitude of gods, the Baals, uh, but Baal specifically was often represented as a bull and, and, and was worshipped in many ways, notably through the use of prostitutes, self-harm, burnt offerings of animals, and sometimes even through human sacrifice. And they thought that in doing so, that in worshipping Baal, that, that, that he would prosper them and provide fertility to their crops and animals. So it's pretty crazy. What, what they were up to there. And um, theologian Gary Smith, he writes, the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, was so syncretized with Baalism over the years that some people thought Yahweh and Baal were just two different names for one divine being. Like, it's like when people say, all, all gods, you know, they're all the same. They all point to the same God. That's, that's what they were doing there, right? And 
And then he continues, he says, No wonder God was angry that the people were prostituting themselves by worshiping another God and not remaining faithful to the covenant responsibility to love the God of Israel with all their heart and soul. So again, not, not only were, were Israel, was Israel, as some Bible translations say, whoring themselves off to Baal, they were also confusing Baal with God himself and even, and even giving Baal the credit for their prosperity, even though it was Yahweh, their, their true God, who'd been remaining faithful to his covenant with them by blessing them and making them prosper. To this effect, God says about his bride in, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 13, he says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And I will punish her for the feast, of, feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So this is like if, if my wife gave me, you know, say she gave me like this stylish outfit and, and, and a gift card to a nice restaurant for my birthday, and then I wore that outfit and I used that gift card to take a different woman on a date. That's okay, right? Isn't it? No. How horrible would that be? How insulting to my wife as well, right? This is what's happening in Israel at the time. And, and they'd spent so many years being ungrateful and unfaithful to the Lord for his blessings and his prosperity that, it, that it's come to a point that they'd actually forgotten that God was their provider, that God was their first love, even using what God had given them to honor Baal. This is why in God's eyes their idolatry was basically adultery. And to make matters worse, their distance from the God of love and the God of life, combined with their continued affinity with false idol worship, had then created among them this culture of injustice and corruption, which was quite the opposite of what God had intended for them. There's supposed to be a nation of priests that represent God. We learned last week, right, of, of peace and love, blessing the nations around them. That's what they were supposed to be. But this is what they are now. Hosea, at the time, Hosea 4, 1 to 3 says, Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. It's like he's in court right now, right? And then he says, There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea disappear. So right here we also see that the direct correlation between a lack of the knowledge of God and, and an affinity for self-centeredness, evil, and corruption, Right? Mark my words, that the more our society distances itself from God, the more corrupt and unjust our society will become. And we already see that happening at all levels. But it's easy to point the finger, right? So, of course, as we take a sober look into our own lives, shouldn't this also give us pause? Do we recognize 
how much we break God's heart when we sin against him. And in the same vein, do we recognize how seriously God takes our sin? That's one thing we can't deny when we read through the minor prophets, how, how seriously God takes our sin. And, and on that end, do we recognize that when we take what he's given us, our blessings and our gifts and our very life, and then, and then use them to, to prop ourselves up or, or pursue idols like comfort or, or status or the American dream or the things of the world or whatever else, that God sees that as, as idolatry? He looks at us doing this and he says, you're cheating on me. Anyone who's experienced a deep betrayal of a close friend or the pain of a cheating spouse, I'm sure can tell you that it does not feel very good. I can't imagine how God feels here. So what should God do about it? He's in this dilemma. What's he, what's he going to do about it? A whole nation of people that, that, that he loves deeply, whom, whom he rescued from slavery in Egypt and, and brought into the promised land. A, a, a people whom he poured out blessing upon and blessing upon and, and who he'd made a holy covenant with is now continually turning from him and cheating on him. Playing the prostitute with false gods and through committing injustices and deceit among themselves. Refusing to repent and give up their adul adulterous behavior even after God has called them time after time to come back. What should he do about this? Well, it's with this thought in mind that the Lord laments in Hosea 6, 4-7. He says, what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am, what am I going to do with you, Judah? Your, your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. This is why I have used the prophets to cut them down. I've, I've killed them with the words from my mouth. My, my judgment strikes like lightning, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But they, like Adam, have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. And it's at this point in which the children of Hosea and Gomer come into play, which we read in the first passage, right? For, for the names of each of their offspring were specifically given to them by God in order to metaphorically represent to Israel the, the judgment that they'd birthed or brought upon themselves in their unrepentant betrayal. So there's three children, and the first child to be born to to, to uh, Gomer and Hosea is a, is a male, and God tells Hosea to name him Jezreel. Jezreel. And this name, uh, translated in England, English, means more or less, God will sow. God will sow. And, and what's he going to be sowing upon them? Judgment for their sin. More specifically, Jezreel is also a location in Israel, uh, a place where much injustice and innocent bloodshed occurred in the past, mainly by King Jehu and King Ahab. 
and his queen Jezreel, or Jezebel. And so ultimately God is announcing through naming this boy Jezreel that this nation, which was, again, supposed to be a nation of peace and love and blessing, will now soon be avenged for the great injustices and innocent bloodshed which had occurred throughout Israel. And, and this judgment will specifically be realized as God removes that corrupt bloodline of kings forever. And they're going to be kingless until, hint, hint, the king of kings comes on the scene. The next child to be born to Hosea and Gomer is a daughter who they're instructed to name Lo-Ruhama, which carries the meaning no mercy or no compassion, depending on the translation. That's, that's a horrible name. Imagine naming your kid No Mercy or No Compassion. Actually, my oldest son said it'd be cool if his name was No Mercy because he'd come into gym class and they're like, what's your name? And he'd be like, No Mercy. And then it's like, <laughs> but. Um, but that's not what the name is supposed to mean. This name, this name was meant to symbolically announce to Israel that they finally rejected the, the Lord to such a point that he could no longer extend his hand of compassion and mercy towards them. Ultimately meaning that, you know, his, his protection would no longer be on them when they found themselves in trouble, specifically and especially on the day Hosea prophesies when the Assyrian army would come into town to destroy their land and scatter them all into exile throughout the Assyrian empire, which is an event that historically occurs only a couple decades later. Though in contrast to this, he also states that around the same time, the nation of Judah would also face the same Assyrian army, but that they would be saved by God alone and, and not by any method of warfare. And this event also historically occurs many decades later during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah when God himself rescues them by by desolating a whole army of Assyrians who were camped at their gates, all because Hezekiah had chosen at that time to trust in the Lord above all else. A reminder for Israel of what could have been had they repented and turned to God. And then finally, a third child is born to them, another son, and God tells Hosea to name him Lo-Ami, which translates in English from, from Hebrew to mean not my people. And this name is worse than the last. Not my people. The, the picture, the metaphor is pretty clear. It means they could no longer rightly claim to be the people of God, and neither could God call them as such since they'd so convincingly and fully rejected his ways and given themselves to other pagan gods and idols. From, from their end, the covenant had been broken. The, the cheating wife had left for good. And God says, fine, you leave. Right? In that state, they were no longer God's people, and he was no longer their God. Or as God says in chapter 2, verse 2, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That's the broken state they've found themselves in. And God's heart is clearly broken here. You can hear it throughout Hosea, just his lamenting. His heart's broken, understandably enough. But yet, this isn't how the story ends. 
Author Stan Guthrie writes, God is not some soulless deity, an eye in the sky keeping track of all our movements in order to deal out punishment. He is a betrayed husband, a jilted lover, who nevertheless desires mercy for us, even to the end. In fact, God proclaims through the mouth of Hosea that that even as they rebelled against him, and even as the priests spoke lies about him, he still desired to redeem them. And redeem them, he will. Because as we're reminded in 2 Timothy 2.3, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Isn't that beautiful? If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's who he is. And so even while Israel faces the consequences of their sin and faithlessness, he also gives them hope by promising them that he won't leave them in their exile. In fact, Hosea declares that, 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 that the purpose of their exile was to open their eyes to their folly in worshiping Baal so that they could once again remember the Lord, their husband, their God. And on that day, the Lord declares he'll redeem them and he'll restore them back into a new and better covenant. And not based on anything they do. Since they've obviously proved themselves, that they're, proved that they're incapable and unfaithful. But all because of who God is and what he'll do for them. Because he is faithful, because he's merciful, because he never stopped loving and pursuing his bride, even when they stopped loving and pursuing him. Listen to what God promises them in the midst of their adultery. Hosea 2, 14 to 23. He says to them, therefore, I am going to persuade her lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. He's going to restore the land. And then he says, I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. On that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky, and it will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lo Ruhama, I will say to Lo Ami, You are my people, and he will say, You are my God. This is probably one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It's so powerful. And this is the grace and faithful love of God for his bride. 
And, and notice, again, that this new covenant agreement has, has God doing all of it himself, right? They, they didn't have to do anything. It says, he will woo her back in, into a marriage which lasts forever. He will rem- remove the name of Baal from her mouth. He will make an everlasting covenant with her. He will make her faithful, righteous, loving, compassionate, and give her the knowledge of the Lord. And he'll change the meaning of the name Jezreel from sowing judgment to sowing his people for himself into a fertile land. And he'll change the name of no compassion to compassion. And he'll transform the name of not my people, to you are my people. And then they will say, you are my God. He's going to undo and restore everything they've wrought. He will do it. Then the question is, how? How is he going to do this? How is he going to restore this this broken marriage covenant and, and make it even more secure, like he's saying here? Well, he shows us again through the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea 3, 1 to 5. Hosea says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Raisin cakes, they use that in worship to a goddess, by the way. It's kind of random. So this is what Hosea does. So he says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not not be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So how is God going to get his bride back? He's going to purchase her. He's going to pay the ransom price to redeem her. And can you imagine that Gomer has cheated and adulterated and prostituted herself out to the point that she's now basically owned by someone else, another lover or a pimp or something, right? Just, just like how the Israelites were now owned by the Assyrians because of their sin. Yet Hosea, as, as hurt as he would have been as her husband, he doesn't give up on her, on her or leave her in her shame. Instead, he lovingly pays the price of her freedom and invites her back into the marriage, calling her and giving her the opportunity to be faithful once again. This is what God does for Israel. He brings them back. He pays the price to bring them back. More than that, this is what he lovingly did for all of us when we were slaves to our sin. He sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price of our sin and for our redemption and to transform our hearts also that we can dwell with God and walk in faithfulness towards him. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We were bought with a price. And, and this is... This is uh, who it's referring to in Hosea chapter 3. Remember how it says they'll, they'll seek the Lord and, and, and David their king? 
Well, King David has long since died by then, by this time. So what Hosea is referring to is the, the promised seed of David, the Messiah King who will rise up and redeem and reign over God's people in the last days. He's referring to Jesus. And Jesus, again, came to fulfill the promises of God that we see in Hosea. Again, he paid for our redemption with his life on the cross with the shedding of his blood. And not only that, but he also came to be the right, our righteousness, just as Hosea prophesied. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, it's God who, who did it. God who makes us righteous. And Jesus also came to usher us into a new and better covenant with God. And it's one that's securely and solely built on his perfect work and faithfulness, not ours. And so it's one that cannot be broken. Hebrews 9.15 says about Jesus, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And furthermore, it's also Jesus who restores this metaphorical marriage between God and mankind, who will fully sanctify us and prepare us, the church, as his bride in order to present, be presented to him, the bridegroom, in the last days. It says in Revelation 19.7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And so ultimately, it's through Jesus Christ that we can declare God's covenant promise in Hosea to, to, to restore us fully to himself as being fulfilled just as it says in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. But all those who believe in Jesus, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks be to Jesus. In the last chapter of Hosea, the prophet calls the people of Israel to repent and, and to come back to the Lord so that they can receive his forgiveness and mercy. He calls them to turn from, from idols and, and the things of the world and trust in the Lord alone. So he can restore them and watch over them. He's, he's calling them into, into a season of revival. And this is the same call for us today and every day. Repent and turn back to the Lord. Turn from your idols and, and the things of the world and from your shame and come back to Jesus in faith. Receive his mercy and grace. Sing his praises. For he is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He's our provider. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant with God that cannot be broken. A covenant which invites us to know the Lord and to dwell in a holy and faithful relationship with him. A covenant which eternally declares that he is our God and we are his people. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word spoken through Hosea to the, the people of Israel. And how it speaks to us today, Lord. On that end, Jesus Christ, we confess that, that we have sinned against you. In, in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds, we, we, we've had anxieties about the future even though we proclaim you as Lord. We have failed to love our neighbors. and We have disobeyed your commands. We have cheated on you with the world. And so, Lord, we ask for you to have mercy upon us. Lord, we ask you to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we may walk in your ways and solely serve you in grace and love and know you and grow in the knowledge of who you are, Lord. And this we ask in your holy name. Amen.